episode 20, Goals and Elephants. So, including the six episodes of The History of Nationalism in Ireland, and the 24 episodes of Alexander, this is my 50th formal scripted podcast. How cool is that? If you were expecting something really cool in this episode, uh, no, you won't be guessing that. Sorry. Partly because I only realised this would be my 50th show this week, and that really isn't enough time to put anything together. But I do have some really cool things coming up, and the 50th episode is as good a time as any to announce them. You should have some idea of how cool they are, because I'm not waiting until the end of the show to announce this stuff. Okay, people of the United Kingdom, and possibly other places of the world, on the 25th of November, 2012, I'm going to be in York, hanging out with Jamie Jeffers of the British History Podcast. Jamie is visiting from Portland, USA, to do some stuff with the Staffordshire Horde. And while he's over here, we've decided to meet up. So yes, you know what this means. The first ever The History of Podcast meet-up. Well, a crossover meet-up with the British History Podcast, but still, it will be awesome. From 5pm, we will be in the Black Swan in York for a couple of hours and we would both love it if you can come. We can chat about whatever. And yeah, it will be a ton of fun. And I don't want any rubbish about it being too far to come. I'm travelling 60 miles to get there. While Jamie's travelling 5,000 miles. If you are anywhere remotely nearby, try to come. It really will be really, really awesome. The Black Swan Inn, York, Sunday the 25th of November, 5pm. For more information about the pub, visit www.blackswanyork.com. If you thought that was enough incredible news for one podcast, you'd be wrong, there is more. Okay, so while we're not doing much to celebrate the 50th, the history of podcast episode, we will be celebrating episode 25 of Hannibal, which is fast approaching. I already have plans in motion for something special, and a bit different, but I would love to get you guys involved too. I figure it'll be a great chance to do a bit of Q&A, if you have any questions out there that is, if you want to know about the podcast, how it's made, the origin story, future projects about me, about Manchester City, about Hannibal, about Rome, Carthage, the Punic Wars, Alexander the Great. Maybe you'd want to guest introduce the show. Maybe you have some ideas about something for the 25th episode, whether it be something to talk about or something to do. For all of the above and more, please let me know. Just nothing about the X-Factor. I can't stand that rubbish. I'm sure you all know how to contact me, but if you don't, you can contact me by sending me an email. 
thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast and twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod. Also, if you're going to come hang out with me and Jamie in York, I'd appreciate it if you contact me beforehand, just so I have some idea of numbers and who's coming. But if you don't contact me, that doesn't mean I don't want you to show up. So, York Meetup, 25th episode spectacular. Contact me about both, please. Now that we have that out of the way, shall we get back to the Punic Wars? Where were we? Oh yes. It is early 218 BC. Hannibal is around the Pyrenees, and the tribes of the area have let him pass through their land after meeting him at Illiberis. Meanwhile in Italy, the boy and Intibres had just broken into revolt. This isn't that surprising really. Just think back to episode 13. They think it's all over. These were the two Gallic tribes that invaded Italy in 225 BC. This had been followed by a Roman victory and an uneasy peace. The Gauls were incensed by Roman advances into their territory. The Via Flaminia opened up the Po Valley to the Romans, and two towns had been built in the area which particularly upset the Gauls. Placentia and Cremona. Livy says in Book 21, Chapter 25, the Gauls acted almost as if Hannibal were already over the Alps. They figured that the reports of Hannibal advancing meant that now was the perfect opportunity to throw off the Roman yoke. The Romans were caught completely by surprise. The Gauls seized the countryside and forced the Romans back into their colony of Mutina. Things may seem bad for the Romans, but the Gauls had no real experience of siege warfare. They didn't know how to break into Mutina, and they knew this. They made no attempt to storm the city. The Gallic chieftains invited Roman envoys to meet with them, but the envoys were seized. The chieftains demanded that the Romans return the Gallic hostages in exchange for these envoys. This was a low blow, and went against standard diplomatic procedure. So, while things were not dire for Rome, things were not looking good. This is when the praetor, Lucius Manlius, took action. You'll remember from episode 2 that a praetor was just below the consul in terms of rank. This would be a gamble for Manlius. He had no scouts and would have to march his legion through the woods to try and relieve Mutina. The gamble did not exactly pay off. He fell into a trap. 500 of his men were killed, but he managed to bring his force into the open and fortified his position. Once his troops realised the Gauls didn't want to make a serious attack, 
their morale increased. They then moved on to Mutina. In the open, and things went well. Until Manlius led his force back into the woods, where the Gauls attacked the rear of his column. Things went to pieces remarkably quickly. The famous Roman discipline fell apart. Six standards were lost, and 700 men killed, before the force once again made it to open country. They learned their lesson this time. Avoid the woods. They made it to the village of Tanatum, by the Po, where the Brixian Gauls helped keep a relatively safe position. Another praetor, Gaius Attilius, was sent north to aid Manlius with another legion. By my reckoning, there were now four legions in northern Italy. One led by Manlius, one led by Attilius, along with two which had previously been stationed in Placentia and Cremona. This was the situation in Cisalpine Gaul when Hannibal arrived later that year. So, shall we return to Hannibal? Well, not just yet. By now, the direction of war was becoming clearer to the Romans, as seen by the four legions in the north. They didn't know yet that the major theatre of war would be Italy, as Hannibal was plotting, but they knew something serious was going to happen there. One of the consuls was sent to Massilia, to prepare for Hannibal, who had reportedly begun his march to Italy. Oh yes, I haven't actually mentioned the names of these consuls yet. Oops. Titus Sempronius Longus and Publius Cornelius Scipio. Sempronius Longus was the one who had been sent to Sicily, while Scipio was to invade Spain. It was Scipio who was now sent north to Massilia, with 60 warships. The first thing Scipio needed was to know where Hannibal was. He was unsure if he'd crossed the Pyrenees or not. When he found out that Hannibal was in fact crossing the Rhone. Wait, what? Well, Scipio and the Romans were expecting Hannibal to be held up by the Gallic tribes. They hadn't thought that Hannibal would be proactive and gain the permission of the Gallic tribes to pass through by means of gifts. Or as Polybius bluntly puts it, bribes. In short, they failed to take into account the independent will of the enemy. Hannibal had raced along the coast of southern Gaul, and was now at the Rhone. Scipio couldn't believe this. There was no way that this was possible. It was not humanly possible for Hannibal to be here so quickly. He sent a force of 300 of his best cavalry, along with Gallic mercenaries, serving with the Massiliates as guides, as a reconnaissance party. He would stay behind in Massilia to rest the troops. Hannibal now sought to make friends with the tribes in this area 
and succeeded. As he made his way to the Rhone, the tribe he needed to deal with was the Voli, a powerful people on both sides of the Rhone. They didn't think that they could hold the Carthaginians out of their territory, so almost all of them moved to the eastern bank of the Rhone. Those that were left on the western side had no desire for the Carthaginians to linger, and so rafts and vessels of varying sizes were assembled to get them over. At this point, the Gauls on the eastern side did not want them to enter, and so sent a force to the banks of the river to dissuade the Carthaginians from crossing. Hannibal sent his nephew, Hanno, a day's march upstream, where he would cross over the river after dark. Please note that this was not the Hanno who was left back in Spain with 10,000 infantry. The Carthaginians have a very Macedonian habit of having five names between them, all of which begin with the letter H. I am, of course, exaggerating, but still, it's an annoying habit, and makes the situation confusing for all. So, Hanno's guides tell him of a good place to cross upriver, and he finds it 25 miles away. They cross the next day, and make a signal fire to let Hannibal know they've crossed, and that they're near. Hannibal then begins his own crossing of the Rhone. The Gallic warriors surged forward to the shore, letting leash their war cries. Then, all of a sudden, there were Carthaginians in their midst. Hanno had captured their camp, and was now upon them. The Gauls fled to their villages. Hannibal felt he had done enough, and Gallic resistance was now nothing more than Hossair. He leisurely crossed the rest of his men across the river. Now, the men were quite easy to get across. The horses weren't that much of an issue. But the elephants? Now, they were a challenge. Livy offers a report, which he finds preposterous, that one of the drivers goaded his elephant into chasing him into the river. The elephant charged, and was followed by his fellow elephants, into the river, where the force of the current carried them across. Interesting. Extremely unlikely, but interesting. The more accepted account is that a raft, 200 feet long and 50 feet wide, was built and covered with earth and leaves to trick the elephants into thinking that it was land. They were tricked, and walked onto the bridge. Then a smaller raft, 100 feet long and 50 feet wide, was placed beyond that, which the elephants would march onto, and then be towed across the river. As soon as they were being towed on the raft, the elephants began to panic. A few of the divers fell into the river, where they were able to swim into the shallows and crossed the river. This may have led to the first story. So, all 37 elephants made it across the river. 
Remember, guys, amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics. While wars and battles are all very interesting, they wouldn't happen without engineering feats like this. You know what? This is the first time I've mentioned Hannibal's elephants. How criminal of me. What were these elephants like? Because they're probably not exactly what you're picturing in your head. Those of you who are as fascinated by natural history as I am, and also watch pretty much every single David Attenborough documentary that you can find, will know there are two species of elephant. The African elephant and the Indian elephant. The African elephant is larger than the Indian. The tallest part of it is its head, and it has large ears to keep it cool. While the Indian is smaller, the tallest part of the Indian is its back, and it has smaller ears. Which of these types did Hannibal have? The African was closer than the Indian elephant, and larger, but the Indian was much easier to train. The answer, probably, is neither. I subscribe to the theory of Gavin de Beer, biologist and former director of the British Museum of Natural History. He believes that the elephants were a now extinct species, the North African forest elephant. These were smaller than the African elephant, only 8 feet high, rather than 11. Numismatic evidence, i.e. coins, suggest that Hannibal used some sort of African elephant, as the elephants on his coins have huge ears. While this North African variety would have been native in the area, and much easier to transport than the larger African bush elephant, which is what you'll think of when you think of an elephant on safari. Being smaller means they would have been easier to transport, but it also means they would have been used quite differently in warfare. They were too small to use a howdah, the platform that goes on the back of an elephant, which is often used for missiles, the driver would have carried javelins, but the elephant itself would have been the main weapon. You should remember this when I speak of elephants in the future. Though one elephant is named by Pliny the Elder in his natural history. It supposedly fought the bravest out of all the elephants in the Second Punic War, and was named Surus the Syrian. It is possible that this particular elephant was an Indian elephant, but the rest were probably the smaller North African forest species. This seems like a good place to end the show for this week. If you like the show, why not like it online at facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. Follow us, twitter.com forward slash the history of pod. Subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash the history of podcast. 
check out the website, thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com. Send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Please get in touch with regard to the 25th episode spectacular and the York meetup. Hoping to hear from you soon. I'll see you next week, when Hannibal moves closer to Italy, and Scipio makes a decision which will change the nature of the war, finally doing something proactive. About time too.